This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Richard Dennis. Richard is the Chief Economist at the Australia Institute based in Canberra. He joined me to talk about the state of Australia's economy now that we're in a recession, as well as the national accounts and the fate of the JobKeeper and JobSeeker programs in this time of coronavirus. This interview was conducted on July 28, 2020. I'm very pleased to welcome to the show someone who is not in Victoria and probably lucky for him at the moment is Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, which is based up in Canberra. And uh, Dr. Richard Dennis is joining us again to talk about the economic situation in Australia and where we stand, what things are likely to look like based on the settings that the government has announced. And of course, they haven't announced everything. They've said that there is more to come, but it is quite further down the track than a lot of people would like. We're also going to look at JobKeeper and JobSeeker and those announcements. Maybe we'll first up welcome Richard and also we'll dive into what is on a lot of people's minds in economics at the moment, which is uh, the cost of a life. So uh, welcome, Richard, and thank you so much for joining us again. Good morning. Now, Richard, a lot of people in Victoria, and myself included, are particularly concerned about the increase of coronavirus cases in uh, aged care settings. And it's certainly no surprise, as I said at the top of the show, that aged care settings are a high-risk area. It was something that happened in the UK and uh, over in Europe, 50% of deaths in that early period of the coronavirus were elderly residents in aged care settings. So that's something that potentially Australia would have anticipated. But it has kind of opened up discussions about the value of life and whether each life is of equal value and just how important life is in comparison to, say, the economy. And we're kind of getting these interesting comparisons between uh, jobs and and so-called future suicides because of a recession and comparing that to our strong public health response now and whether it is currently warranted and whether the lockdown settings are too harsh a measure. Now, that's not really something that I buy into, but I'm really interested in this economic argument and how and why it's kind of come to the fore right now, given we're seeing so many, tragically, um, deaths of people in their elderly age, of course, but also just recently we have seen at least one 40-year-old pass away in Victoria from coronavirus. So I'm just wondering about that economic argument. What is the argument that it seems a lot of economists might be having, or at least a few of them, uh, in the media at the moment? Uh, well, well, let's be clear. There's, there's always been economists that thought it was better to cause climate change than to fix it. There's always been economists that think it's better uh, to let poor people die of infectious disease and prevent it. So we shouldn't be surprised that some economists currently think that we should let the virus rip because it will only kill people who aren't them. Um, now, you know, that's okay. It's a, it's a free country. It's a democracy. And, you know, we certainly have the freedom to say whatever we want. Uh, the, the issue is what's that got to do with economics uh, and what's that got to do with health policy and, and what's that got to do with the economy? So, 
you know, it's tricky because economists and, and, and the public, we, we do put a value on human life. There's no doubt that we do. Um, uh, we say things like, you know, we'll, we'll do everything we can to, to save people uh, in a flood or a bushfire, but we don't do everything we can to prevent infectious disease. We, we don't do everything we can uh, to, to, to rescue someone who's lost in the bush. And at some point, we decide oh, we've, we've probably spent about enough. So as a society, we, we do have to make hard choices about uh, what we do and what we don't do. But uh, that's, those hard choices are complicated, they're nuanced, they're usually made quite slowly, uh, but what we're witnessing now with COVID is is a very extreme and I think very dangerous version of uh, of sort of economic analysis on the run, with some economists running around saying, "Well, according to my back of the envelope calculation, rather than save tens of thousands of lives, I think it would be better to just let the virus rip and see how it plays out." Uh, and and these views are being taken seriously. I mean, uh, imagine, let's let's take COVID out of the equation and, and say someone was plotting a terrorist attack on Australia that could kill tens of thousands of people. Um, how much would we spend to stop that? Um, you know, we we as a society have to confront our choices, but to to just run around saying, "Oh, it's cheaper to let people die," and to be taken seriously, uh, I think it's uh, well, I think it's startling, but it's it's also a nice example of of how bad economic analysis can be used to inform public debate. Yes, exactly. And um, we did see in a similar vein uh, the Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, reference in his speech at the National Press Club last week a discussion about a suppression strategy versus an elimination strategy. And he does bring up Treasury's modelling about what each strategy um, would do. And he, he kind of hints at this trade-off. He says that a strict elim- elimination strategy would cripple our economy and require us to shut down many more sectors and not allow anyone to enter the country. Treasury, using OECD estimates of the economic impact of full lockdowns, suggests a six-week Australia-wide hard lockdown could reduce GDP by around $50 billion. This is what at stake... In contrast, we've shown that an aggressive suppression strategy targeting low or no community transmission can be effective when implemented well. It seems like he there is kind of hinting at, very strongly, uh, a kind of trade-off and what the government is willing to trade off and what they're not willing to trade off based on the cost to GDP. What is the Treasurer really saying when he's talking about the decision about an elimination or a suppression strategy in these economic terms? Well, look, well, firstly, so, you know, New Zealand has, for all intents and purposes, eliminated COVID-19. So uh, we shouldn't pretend that it's impossible. Western Australia has effectively eliminated the virus. And I think two months ago, a lot of people, including a lot of people in the federal government, thought that we could eliminate it in Australia as well. Um, so, so elimination obviously refers to eliminating the disease within within Australia, and suppression means keeping it so low that it's it's really not a, a major public health problem. But what we've found out is that when you attempt to suppress and fail, 
what you actually get is these big flare-ups that we're seeing in Victoria at the moment, whereas with an elimination strategy, it says, look, just just keep going, just crack down hard when, whenever you get the chance. Now, um, just to be clear, no one knows what the right thing to do is. No one knows. And the problem with things like treasury modelling is that it conjures up all sorts of science and certainty about the future and about the trade-offs. But we don't know. We have no idea whether a vaccine will be invented in three months, three years or never. We don't know. No one at Treasury knows that. Uh, We don't know if the virus will evolve. No one at Treasury knows that. We have no idea, absolutely no idea, uh, how many people might die if we let the virus rip. None. So the problem, the word modelling, unfortunately, is is being has, for so long in Australia has been used so uncritically to suggest precision and certainty in science that we we don't actually put the hard word on politicians or the Treasury official claiming to have conducted this modelling exercise. We don't put the hard word on them to be honest about what they have absolutely no idea about. So, uh, so you know, there are hard choices that we need to make. Should we have hard border closures between all states or should we uh, allow people to travel between states that have very, very small numbers of cases? There's no economic way to answer that question. Uh, and, and even the public health officials will have slightly different answers there. Um, we just have to keep using our judgment But when we talk about modelling, of course, we can suspend judgment. We can pretend that the black box tells us what to do. Well, the black box can't tell us what to do because we've never been in this situation before. Uh, We have no idea what's about to happen. Uh, We just need our our delegated decision makers, that is, our elected members of parliament, to use the best available decisions, uh, to use the best available info to make the decisions that they think are right. And then we have to hold them democratically accountable for those decisions. Exactly. Yeah, that is the situation. And um, I know that a, a lot of people are concerned about the federal government and I guess the state settings, as you just mentioned, there are different border situations at the moment and um, everyone's kind of quarantining Victoria off and hoping that we can get our stuff together and um, hopefully get this under control. But it does, in an economic sense, bring up some issues around having very different economic situations in different states as well, depending on the coronavirus situation and whether, in fact, as Daniel Andrews, the Premier, says... Victoria may have to extend this lockdown and or close down certain industries where we are seeing outbreaks. What are some of the economic or potential economic concerns or effects that, you know, having these very different situations in states could bring up? Uh, well, well, firstly, we are a federation of states. Our constitution is quite clear that state premiers and state ministers are responsible responsible for a wide range of services, including health. So, uh, you know, it's it's kind of a, a media fiction that uh, that the federal government should be in charge of coordinated national policy. Uh, they can play a role, but it's actually constitutionally clearly the state's responsibilities to do a lot of these things. So we shouldn't be surprised by the 
possible. Um, secondly, uh, just as the Northern Territory has quite different policies on a whole range of things to New South Wales or Tasmania uh, when it comes to health and education and uh, and transport policy, uh, we shouldn't be surprised that, that states with entirely different situations in relation to COVID-19 uh, are making quite different decisions. So uh, I, I don't quite understand why people crave uniformity so much, but I think we should all do ourselves a favour and just expect that different state premiers and different uh, state health officials are going to recommend different courses of action at different points in time. It, it's inevitable and I think it's desirable. Um, does it have an impact on the national economy? Of course, but let me just mess with your head here for a second. There's no such thing as the national economy. There is no national economy that the federal government is in charge of. The national economy is purely the sum of its parts. If you add up the GDP of all of our states and territories, you get national GDP. So again, we have this kind of bizarre fiction in our public debate as if the federal government's in charge of the federal economy or the national economy and the state government's in charge of the state economy. There's no such thing. So, of course, when the Victorian government makes responsible decisions to look after Victorians and it has an impact on the Victorian economy, of course that has consequences for the national economy and, of course, it has consequences for other state economies. But that is not Scott Morrison's job. Like, we, we, we talk so much about economic management that we never have to ask anyone what on earth it means. So, you know, what, what is Scott Morrison managing when he's managing the national economy? Well, he's managing the sum of all the state economies. And if all the state premiers do a good job, Scott Morrison will look like he's done a good job. And if all the state premiers do a bad job, Scott Morrison will look like he's done a bad job. That's what's going on here. It's some blame shifting. Scott Morrison wants to blame the Australia's unemployment rate and Australia's GDP rate on, on Daniel Andrews. And, you know, he's he's doing a good job of it. But there, <laughs> there, there's no national economy lever for Scott Morrison to pull right now. I'm interested in the um, lever that they have been pulling up until recently, and I guess they'll somewhat continue to, is uh, the two watchwords of the moment, job keeper and job seeker. And we had been waiting quite a while to find out the fate of these two programs. Of course, JobKeeper is a, a more temporary program and uh, had not been something that Australia had seen prior to coronavirus. But of course, JobSeeker is really the term for what was New Start and what is termed by some people the doll. And so we did finally see an announcement last Tuesday about these two things that the government, the federal government, does have. Uh, control over. And I think it was interesting to see what their thoughts were, particularly given the coronavirus situation that we don't really have it under control yet in Australia. It was interesting to see that they were extending it to some extent, certainly JobKeeper, but not for too long. It still does have an end date, just an extended one. Could you explain to us what the government's thinking might be around um, why they are actually cutting spending in terms of JobKeeper and JobSeeker? 
given that the economy is in recession and uh, coronavirus is not under control, what is the rationale, economic rationale for that? <laughs> well, I, I wish there was one. Um, <laughs> there is no economic rationale. There, there's a political rationale. So, uh, so yeah, look, you're spot on. So let, let's let's describe clearly what's going on at the moment. In Australia, gross domestic product, GDP, total amount of stuff that's produced, uh, the total amount of stuff that's produced in Australia uh, is, is, is falling. That's why, what it means to be in a recession. We're making less stuff now than we were this time three months ago and we were this time last year. So we're used to the economy growing, you're about economic growth all the time. Well, we're actually in economic decline at the moment. Um, and there's lots of reasons for that. And we calculate GDP by, again, adding up the composite parts. What are the composite parts of GDP that we focus on here? Well, there's consumer spending, there's private sector investment, there's government spending and there's exports, net exports. They're the four things that when you add them up, you get GDP. Just like when you add up all the state economies, you get the national economy. When you add up those four categories of spending, you get gross domestic product. Well, we know consumer spending is falling. Why? Well, because people are losing their jobs, people are scared of losing their jobs, and population growth is lower than it's ever been. So consumer spending is down. Um, exports are down. Why? Because there is no tourism industry at the moment. There's no or very little inbound education uh, in terms of foreign students coming here to study. That counts as an export. Uh, and, of course, the rest of the world economy has gone into recession and we sell our exports to them. So Australian consumer spending down, exports are down, Private investment is down. Why? Well, because the reason people build bigger factories or bigger shops is because they think they're going to sell more stuff. Well, if your domestic consumers are buying less and your foreign consumers are buying less, why would you build another factory? So, again, consumer spending down, uh, private investment spending down, net exports down. Literally the only thing propping up the economy at the moment, the only thing that grew in the first half of this year was government spending. The only thing that, that actually expanded in our economy was government spending. That's why we haven't seen unemployment go a lot higher. That's why so many, uh, so, so much of the economy is doing better than people thought it would. But now the government is literally promising literally promising to cut government spending in the second half of this year. So the only thing that kept the economy from, from contracting, from collapsing catastrophically, was an increase in government spending. Now they're promising to cut it. Now, you ask me what the rationale for that is. Well, I've, I've no idea. You really can't find an economist in the country that disagrees with the idea that increasing government spending will lead to an increase in GDP and stop the unemployment rate rising so fast. The only reason the government is cutting government spending is, is politics. It's symbolism. The government has spent so long saying that debt is bad and deficits are a sign of poor economic management, brackets, they're not, uh, but they've spent so long saying that that they're now under political pressure to, to perform budget cuts, not for an economic reason, but for a symbolic reason. And, and there's no better symbol, of course, for conservatives than cutting spending on poor people. 
So in the middle of a recession with 1.6 million people on unemployment benefits, we're going to cut the benefits of that 1.6 million people for symbolic purposes. And, you know, that's that's just the way we roll in Australia. Gosh, it is um, nonsensical to say the least. One of the things that was kind of surprising, I think, when I was reading about the figures of what the cost of JobKeeper is and has been essentially over six months up until September, which was the initial period of JobKeeper, it's expected to cost about $70 billion. But the following six months, it'll cost far, far less. And we saw uh, Ross Gittins mention in his piece it could reduce the additional cost of JobKeeper to less than $4 billion by slashing the JobKeeper supplement, so reducing that rate that people will actually receive and uh, people won't be receiving the same amount that they had been, a lot of uh, workers who are on JobKeeper at the moment. And I know we did talk about JobKeeper last time and the discussion around it not being optimal in terms of its targets and um, and it certainly had room to improve. What are your thoughts on the tweaks and changes that the government has made on JobKeeper and do you think that that has made any improvement to the situation? Well, yes, you're right. I mean, well, just, just firstly on, on JobSeeker, according mm. to modelling done by the Australia Institute, uh, the cuts to the JobSeeker supplement we'll see more than 300,000 people plunged below the poverty line. 300,000 people will live below the poverty line because of that decision. And as you say, that cut in spending will will have flow-on effects that will cause more unemployment. So that cut in spending will impoverish 300,000 people, literally, and it will cause unemployment because those people are all going to be spending less money in the local shops. So that's mm. unambiguous. Um, in terms of JobKeeper, yeah, you're right, it's trickier because it's, it's, a, it's a new idea, that form of wage subsidy. Uh, the one that was introduced by the government was developed quite quickly. It was very broad. Um, in principle, I don't have any problem with the government uh, looking around to make sure that companies, let's talk about this, their whole thing has been to give money to business because giving money to business will trickle down and help you and I. Uh, if there are businesses that are receiving JobKeeper uh, who don't need it because they're actually getting enough revenue from their customers to keep their staff employed, uh, then I see absolutely no problem with, with cutting JobKeeper. But uh, that doesn't seem to be the rationale for the government's changes. So, you know, let's go back to the beginning. The government decided to exempt everyone on a temporary work visa from receiving JobKeeper. That had nothing to do with economics the government decided to exclude all casuals who hadn't been in the same workplace for 12 months from receiving JobKeeper. That had nothing to do with economics. Uh, now they're coming up with a bunch of new thresholds, uh, some of which are around ensuring that businesses aren't getting money they don't need. Uh, but many of the new cutoffs uh, are just as arbitrary and just as capricious as the original ones. So part of, you know, there's... Parts of JobKeeper should be getting expanded right now. There's still no economic reason to exclude people on temporary visas. None. It's not economics, it's politics. 
so I think we should be expanding parts of JobKeeper, uh, and yeah, we should be reining it in where it's no longer necessary. But so, so I don't think we can have a question or can't have a conversation about is reining in JobKeeper good or bad. Uh, reining in some parts of it is good. We should be expanding parts of it. Yes, exactly. And it's important to recall that the government had budgeted for far more spent on JobKeeper originally. As we recall, um, there was a $60 billion difference in what they had expected. So their preparedness to spend more was certainly alive earlier this year. I do want to ask about uh, something that is very important to us here at Triple R, particularly just heading back to Job Seeker, which is, of course, the unemployment benefit or allowance. And you mentioned that over 300,000 would be thrown back into poverty because of the cut of the supplement from $550 to $250 a fortnight, which cuts out 300 in the supplement. Um, and we already know that uh, job seeker was really, really low and we were calling for an increase for many, many years. And of course, that supplement does have an end date too in this plan. Um, So that's another concern for so many people is that it will be wound up after December. Um, Of course, it seems like the economy and uh, the, the amount of unemployment won't be resolved by December. So I'm wondering in terms of the job seeker supplement and the role that it's played in the economy, I did note that similar figures from the Australia Institute suggested that having that coronavirus supplement of $550 uh, actually lifted 400,000 Australians out of poverty um, initially. And so it had a a great positive effect. And that it also, as you've noted in your Guardian article last week, saw uh, June employment numbers increase by record amounts. It was the largest monthly increase in Australian history of over 200,000 jobs. So I'm wondering when we're looking at the effectiveness of of things like stimulus in the form of the the job seeker supplement, why would the government wind back something that seems to be one of the greatest policy initiatives they've ever introduced? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, Scott Morrison lifted more people out of poverty, more people out of poverty in one fell swoop with increasing the uh, the job seeker supplement than, than than any prime minister in Australian history. But unfortunately, he's about to plunge more people straight back <laughs> into poverty uh, by making a very the, the opposite decision, and that is to significantly cut it. So. You know, this is this is you know come back to the first point about you know the economics of this, the modelling of this versus the politics of this. If you wanted to stimulate the economy, if that was the one thing you wanted to do, if you wanted to pump money into the economy, the number one easiest way to do that is to increase the disposable income of the poorest people in the country. They're not going to save a cent of it. And they're not going to spend a lot of it on imported luxury goods. They're not. Helping the poorest people in the country right now will simultaneously help landlords because they'll be able to keep paying their rent and it will help the banks by avoiding avoiding an enormous number of uh, mortgage defaults. And and actually right now, the last thing any of us need is, is for the banks to be in real trouble. So... If we wanted to spend money to help the economy and create jobs, the easiest, most effective thing you could do would be to keep 
the job seeker supplement in place. Oh, and by the way, it's probably about the fairest thing you could do because the people bearing the brunt of this recession are, not surprisingly, the unemployed. So it's pretty rare that you get the opportunity to do the best thing from a macroeconomic point of view and the fairest thing from a distributional point of view. It's pretty rare that they line up as neatly as this. Mm. But because because politics trumps economics in Australia every single time, I must admit it it does my head in when I hear people... (laughs) Uh, particularly progressives say the problem with conservatives is they're obsessed with the economy. No, they're not. They're obsessed with the economy. They'd help the poor. If they're obsessed with the economy, we'd have free childcare. If they're obsessed with the economy, they wouldn't spend $500 million on a war memorial. They'd spend it uh, helping women re-enter the labour market. So there's no evidence, none, that, that conservative governments are obsessed with the economy. That's just the story they tell so they can perform the symbolic function of cutting the incomes of the poor uh, to, to, to get their voter base to sort of, you know, see see where their priorities lie. So, yeah, it's it's devastating for the economy to cut the job seeker supplement. It's devastating for the individuals. It'll have huge and lasting income and health effects and equity effects. Um, but, again, to be clear, it's got nothing to do with the economy. Uh, of all the things to spend a few billion dollars on, uh, in an environment where we're spending hundreds of billions of extra dollars, of all the things to spend a few billion dollars on, uh, I think retaining the job seeker supplement is the most obvious. Yes, and with 1.6 million people projected to be unemployed by the end of the year, it's interesting. I wonder whether um, there is really any other policy lever or situation in the economy that's actually going to boost and create more jobs enough to lift people out of this poverty, given that the job seeker supplements seem to have been so effective in actually creating jobs? Look, it has been, and, and I guess, you know, that's Scott Morrison's genius, is that six months into this crisis, really, and there's no plan from the Prime Minister for how to create jobs, none whatsoever. There's no plan from this Prime Minister about uh, what what industries that he wants to support. There's no plan from this Prime Minister about uh, how in the next couple of years when there's going to be hundreds of thousands of young people who won't be able to find jobs, uh, what customised measures he's going to take to ensure that, you know, that they're actually getting years of extra free education rather than years of extra unemployment breaches for not filling out enough applications for jobs they won't get. So let's be clear, it's genius. It's absolute political genius that six months into this crisis, the Prime Minister's complete lack of plan to create jobs uh, and to provide meaningful assistance to those who lack jobs uh, isn't an issue. Daniel Andrews is the issue. The state premiers are the issue. The Chinese are the issue. Everyone's the issue, except the guy who said, vote for me because I'm a genius economic manager. Okay, Scott, what's your plan? I mean it. What's your plan? What are you going to do? Because we're six months into this and we've been cutting him some slack for quite some time now. Mm. And he made, you know, big decisions early on and, you know, we had to move quick, so cut us some slack. Okay, well, it's six months. Where's the plan? We're now being told, oh, wait for the budget in October. Well, why do we have to wait two more months? Yes, exactly. 
Well, it's interesting that the only kind of vague plan or intimation of a plan is that the treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, will take inspiration from Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in a move of back to the 80s. But it seems quite confusing as to why he would raise these people as um, points of inspiration with no real substance behind why. Uh, Because... Again, politics trumps economics in Australia. This is about symbolism. Like he's he's mm. saying to the people who aren't affected by the recession, who he thinks are more likely to vote for him, uh, you know, I haven't lost my way here. It might look like I spent some money on poor people who aren't you. It might look like I became a bit Keynesian there and in opposition to everything I've stood for my whole life. But watch this. This will, you know, watch 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 me puff my chest up and quote Thatcher and Reagan. Like I'm, 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 I'm still the Josh Frydenberg you thought I was. I just, <laughs> I just spent two hundred billion dollars. I said I wouldn't spend. So, oh, this again, this has nothing to do with economics. That's the trap that yeah. people fall into. You know, Thatcher didn't do a great job of reducing unemployment. Thatcher didn't set Britain up for golden years. You know, what, what's what's to be learnt from her? Yes, I'm not quite sure. One of the issues it's also seemed is that we've had a very strong fixation on debt and deficit for decades now here in Australia, particularly the coalition government. But of course, even Labor has bought into this idea of a surplus um, being absolutely necessary to prove one's economic credentials. And we did see the government on Thursday release their kind of accounts and um, look at the budget deficit, quote unquote, from the last financial year being $86 billion and uh, the deficit projections, which, as you've um, suggested, is uh, obviously not going to be a precise science, but the government is forecasting a deficit of $184 billion in the forthcoming financial year. Why are we getting very caught up and fixated on deficit in the situation we find ourselves in, in a recession? Because it's not just the government that's been fixated on this, it's been the reporting of it and even commentary about it has been very, very uh, fearful and kind of obsessive about these figures. No, absolutely. Oh, well, again, sorry, I've broken record today. It's, you know, it's politics, <laughs> not economics. Back, back when I was studying economics, macroeconomics was a complicated thing, and we learnt that there were all sorts of really impossible trade-offs, trade-offs between balance in the labour market, uh, balance in the finance market, balance in the international markets. That uh, uh, you know, you wanted price stability, you wanted low unemployment, you wanted a current account balance. Uh, all, you know, all sorts of things. Ma- managing the macro economy used to be considered quite complicated. Uh, and then this guy called Peter Costello came along and said, "Nah, that's all rubbish. If I deliver a budget surplus, I'm good at this job." And as luck would have it, I want to privatise a bunch of assets. And when selling assets, I get an enormous one-off boost to revenue, so I get a budget surplus. So Costello, you know, again, credit where credit's due, did a wonderful job of entirely reshaping Australian public debate about economics by saying, don't blame me for unemployment, Uh, blame the workers. Don't blame me for inflation, blame the workers with greedy pay rises. Don't blame me for a current account deficit. Uh, That's because people are buying too much imports. I'm only responsible for the budget, and if I'm delivering a budget surplus, I'm a great treasurer. Well, you know, okay. (laughs) 
It's like saying uh, if, if if I only crash my car once a week, I'm a great driver. If I'm in charge of defining success, it's not hard to achieve success. So basically ever since Peter Costello, we've actually believed that the main thing the government has to do is deliver a budget surplus. And that's not economically true. It's never been economically true. Uh, Donald Trump certainly didn't agree with that. George Bush didn't agree with that. Margaret Thatcher didn't agree with that. These people ran enormous budget deficits. Mm. So, yeah, look, the, the, you know, it's, it's. I know it sounds ridiculous to say this, but, you know, I, I am an economist and there's a whole bunch of economics that anyone can go and read out there. The idea that delivering a budget surplus is the be-all and end-all of economic management is a complete fiction that's a pretty new idea and it's not really popular outside of Australia. It's just not. Look at Donald Trump. I mean, he's delivering a trillion-dollar deficit, a trillion-dollar deficit. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, the internet does exist, people. Other countries are there. Go have a look at what's happening in their countries. Um, um, our, debate, our debate about budget surpluses is weird. Yes, yes, very surreal. Just finally, Richard, I did want to ask and pick up on Peter Costello, which um, it does take me back. And uh, I know that so many people remember the baby bonus. And one lever that did come up in the National Press Club address and question and answer section was talking about increasing population. And um, it's certainly something that I know a lot of women uh, of childbearing age found rather amusing or, and in some ways condescending, was the suggestion that perhaps they should just have more babies to increase the tax base because uh, we are seeing a decline, supposedly, in our baby rate or making babies. And there was a huge kind of flurry of people writing and talking about women having more babies in this uh, current economic situation. And of course, a number of women raising the point that free childcare has now disappeared. I'm just wondering, what do you think about that uh, su suggestion? Oh, look, it's, it's weird for so many reasons. Uh, if the number of people uh, was the main determinant of the strength of an economy, then, you know, everyone in China and India would be rich and mm. people in, in Monaco and Switzerland would be poor. So step one is there's no actual causal link between the number of babies we have and, and the wealth of our ourselves or our nation. That's just made up, again, it's a nice conservative signal to send. Plenty mm. of conservatives out there like women staying home having lots of kids. So, you know, well done, Josh Frydenberg. But it's got nothing to do with the economy. Um, and secondly, yeah, even if you thought, and there's no evidence to back it up, but even if you thought that the best thing we could do to help the economy was to uh, have more babies, then, yeah, you, you'd think that free childcare would be at the, at the, at the top of the to-do list. But, of course, this same government... Uh, introduced that and then just just ripped it away again recently. So, uh, yeah, look, the, the trick is to just not believe that everything happens because of the economy. It's the economy is used an excuse by powerful people to do anything they want. Mm. You know, and if you want to give a tax cut to someone, say it's good for the economy. If you, if you, want, to, if you want to cut unemployment benefits to someone else, say that's good for the economy. You know, you, 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 want, you want people to have more babies, tell them it's good for the economy. You want to get rid of free childcare, tell them it's good for the economy. People just have to learn to see through this nonsense. Yes, and thank you very much for helping us see through the nonsense, Richard. It's been very <laughs> valuable as usual. Uh, thank you so much for Anytime. joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Steve.
I've been speaking with Dr. Richard Dennis, Chief Economist at the Australia Institute, and we've been talking about the Australian economy and, uh, of course, the many issues that we face at the moment economically and socially and uh, the government announcements last week around JobKeeper, JobSeeker and the government figures 